Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right to it, Dr. Andrew Pekosh has been joining us for years, it feels like. Actually, it may just be almost years as we deal with this pandemic for a second year. He is professor and virologist at Johns Hopkins University, Bloomberg School of Public Health. We are so lucky to have you here, Dr. Pekosh, on the morning where everyone is all concerned about the virus once again. What's your view into how serious this particular variant is? Well, let me first start by saying all the credit goes to South African scientists and scientists across Europe for not only detecting this, but using social media in a good way to spread all the information that they have about this. We criticize social media a lot about misinformation. This is an example of how good it can be when it comes to uh, spreading the right information. Uh, We know that just before Thanksgiving, it became obvious that there was in South Africa a new variant that had an abnormally high number of mutations across its gene, but in particular in the spike protein, which is the target for the vaccines that are being distributed globally now. Um, What happened recently is that the South African public health officials realized that one of their PCR tests could actually serve as a surrogate for this variant. And if you use that data, it seems like this 529 variant is increasing at an incredibly fast pace across areas of South Africa and multiple provinces of South Africa. So that was the, the real significant piece that caused us to get on everybody's radar screen. Do we have a sense of how much it evades the natural immunity conferred uh, by prior infection or by uh, some vaccine? Just theoretically, from looking at the sequence, and you could probably see it right behind me on my desktop here, uh, it has a number of mutations which have been predicted to evade antibody responses. Now, it has a few that are conserved, so this won't be a case of something that's completely able to evade the vaccine-induced immunity, but it has more than other variants that we've seen so far, which again, on paper, is what uh, is concerning to us. Andy, good morning to you. We're just getting some lines coming through from uh, from BioNTech, who, of course, have been working with Pfizer on that vaccine, much used around the world. They're just giving us some time scales around what they're going to do next, and I think this is interesting. They expect data from lab tests on the new variants in two weeks that, depending on that lab data, may require vaccine adjustment. That gives us a sense that we'll, we will know then in the next couple of weeks or in two weeks' time just how well in a lab environment the Pfizer vaccine will stand up to this. Then the real world will be another thing. Absolutely. And that sounds like about the right timeline. As I just mentioned, the sequences on my desk right now, emails have gone out to try to get my laboratory group together to try to prepare to do some of these tests. I'm actually here in the office today doing some of these antibody tests against other variants that we have in the laboratory. So that sounds like the right time frame. I think in terms of the general public, what this serves as an example of is now is the time to actually go out and do something proactive. If you haven't gotten your booster, go get your booster. If you haven't gotten your vaccine, go get your vaccine because by the time this variant becomes uh, a a global threat if it does um, now is the time to act to try to do something to help curve the impact of this variant so it just serves as a reminder we have tools we have to use them efficiently and Mm. if you haven't been vaccinated now's the time to get it if you haven't gotten your booster now's the time to get it to really give you the best tools to fight off this variant 
Uh, and Andy, what do you take away as a sort of big learning from the way that this this uh, variant has uh, emerged and may be out there in various parts of the world? We know it's in Southern Africa, of course. We know it's in Hong Kong and we know it's in Israel and, you know, it could be elsewhere as well. We, we don't know yet. The UK has said it's not here in the UK, but we'll wait to hear from lots of places. What do you take away? Is this all about making sure that we get better distribution of vaccines globally? Because that sounds an appealing argument to make and you can definitely see the humanitarian reasons behind that. But in South Africa, our reporting suggests that they, they don't have full vaccination, but it's not to do with a lack of vaccine. It's a lack of the right information getting to the right people to persuade them to go get the vaccine. Absolutely. You hit on some important points there. I think first it starts with testing. Good testing coupled with sequencing allows for the detection of these variants early, and that helps us prepare for these variants. And then two, it informs the current public health interventions. As I mentioned, getting yourself vaccinated is the first thing that you can do right now. It may be that we need to reformulate a vaccine. If this virus does become dominant in the world, that can be done. We have antivirals on our way that can be utilized effectively, but we have to think about these things as layered approaches to protect us from COVID-19. None of them are 100% effective, but combined approaches allow us to minimize the severity of this disease. And again, this variant is going to be another test, if it does emerge globally, of how well we can do the things that we've already learned can uh, turn the tide on COVID-19 cases. Well, Dr. Pekosh, less than 24 hours ago before this news rocked the world, families were getting together all across the U.S. for Thanksgiving dinner. Do you worry about a holiday surge akin to last year? Well, across the U.S., actually, we're starting to see signals of a surge even before people traveled for Thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. And that's even before we have to worry about this 529 variant. So the data from the U.S. alone is telling us that case numbers are going up. They're going up in regionally uh, very distinct manners. But in some places, they are causing um, significant strain on our public health, on our hospital infrastructure already. So even without this variant being a, con a concern for us, the U.S. cases, we're not doing enough to really limit these cases. And I am concerned that we're going to see another surge of, in this case, Delta here in the U.S. after the Thanksgiving holidays. All right, Andrew Pakosh of Johns Hopkins, thank you so much for being with us, especially with the idea that you have rushed to the office to start doing some of these lab tests yourself in order to get ahead of this emergent virus. How much do travel curbs really change the backdrop, the supply-demand dynamic? I'm Rita Sen, founder and director of research at NRG Aspects. Joining us now, I'm Rita. Happy Thanksgiving. Thank you for being with us. What's your sense of how much of a game-changer the potential entrant of this South African variant could be? Well, happy Thanksgiving to all of you. Um, look, I think this is a huge overreaction in terms of the market. Uh, the market is fearing the worst. The calculations we've done uh, so far with all the borders closed globally, we are talking about just 15, 15,000 barrels per day of lost jet fuel demand. Uh, mm. Sure, Europe could potentially kind of come up with a bigger kind of blanket ban uh, for travel to South Africa. Even then, you are talking about a few like 10, 20,000 barrels per day of jet fuel demand. Uh, the big routes, the transatlantic that remains open, that's kind of the biggest driver uh, for a lot of that jet travel. And Asia still reopening um, hasn't really kind of, we haven't seen that uh, start up, say, between... 
long haul flights between Asia and other parts of the world. So that's not going to get se- severely affected to begin with. But yeah, look, this is the market pricing in the worst possible scenarios. Where should oil be if this is a blip, if this is something that is uh, graspable and conquerable, conquerable, excuse me? Yeah, I mean, of course, there are lots of ifs. Uh, but like you said, if uh, if it, it turns out that the vaccines are perfectly effective against this new variant, prices should be above $80. Um, you know, the SPR really showed us we've, we've had 65 million barrels of global SPR release outside of China uh, and prices rallied $2. Uh, compare that to 2011 when we had Libyan outage, 60 million barrels of SPR when prices went down $10. It tells you how strong the market is right now, how low stocks are. We've got the OPEC Plus meeting coming up. If this, if these concerns around demand persist, um, it is likely that the group is going to consider pausing output increases anyway. So that puts a floor under prices. But fundamentally, we should be above eighty dollars unless demand really takes a hit. So does this? So, so Amrita, just expanding on that, this the market moves we're seeing here and the risks to oil demand demonstrated by the by the threat, at least, of this uh, virus variant that plays into the OPEC argument that there are risks of oversupply for parts of 2022. Does it? Absolutely. And this is why OPEC Plus have been cautious. This is why OPEC Plus have been very clearly only increasing production by uh, 400,000 barrels per day or their quotas by 400,000 barrels per day, even though the White House and other consumers had been calling for a bigger increase in production. They've been talking about the winter. They've been talking about, look, there could be potential uh, mobility restrictions uh, and their own numbers show really big stock bills. Now, of course, you've had the SPR release, which balloons their Q1 stock bills further to about three, uh, 3 million barrels per day. Now, these are way higher than our numbers, but this is why OPEC Plus have been cautious. And I think today's move justifies um, their actions so far and does call into question why the White House and other consumers released SPR going into a season which is bound to have uncertainties around demand. As we're thinking about things that could influence demand, I just want to draw your attention to lines from the ECB's Luis de Guindos saying deceleration, sorry, saying the eurozone economy has lost some dynamism in the fourth quarter. The deceleration is due to supply bottlenecks and energy costs. Is there any sense then, Amrita, that there's uh, demand destruction has been taking place at these levels above $80 a barrel? So I would say particularly for Europe, it's been higher gas prices more than oil prices that have had a big impact on industry. You have seen industrial demand being cut back. So I think that's where some of the the comments are coming from. Uh, for sure, look, the biggest risk to next year is going to be around these supply chain issues and high energy prices in terms of the downside risk. Uh, we still think in terms of GDP growth or economic growth slowing down. That's more a 2023 story. Uh, But you can't ignore the fact that those are your kind of real bottlenecks going on right now. Uh, But regardless, there's so much pent up demand across the world and Asia is just opening up. So there is a lot more upside to demand as long as, again, this variant doesn't prove to be completely uh, just proves to be the fact that you can't use uh, the existing vaccines against it. Then that's a different story. But otherwise, demand still has more upside. And Marita, something that's got lost amid all the talk of this variant and that SPR release that was coordinated by many countries is the fact that they're still talking about an Iranian nuclear deal. And actually, Iran is attending a meeting in Vienna on Monday to talk about it. And we understand from a phone call they had with the EU earlier today that they say a quick return is possible if sanctions are lifted. If that happens, what is the impact of that Iranian crude coming back onto the market? 
Look, you are, if, if, it's a big if, I'll come on to that Fair in a second, <laughs> you're going to get a big uh, pullback, right? Like it's, it could be 10 even $15 lower. Wow. Uh, but I will really stress this. Iran has been dragging its feet for a very long time. This is no longer just about the JCPOA. We absolutely don't think you're going to get a quick resolution. It's going to probably drag on for months. And uh, we don't think Iranian barrels come back till September 2022 with, with the whole process of sanctions lifting. And... Um, and the reason I said it's going to be a big drop, like $10, $15 potentially, is because Iran has about 60, 70 million barrels of oil just sitting there in tankers. And, you know, that can come uh, out to the market very quickly. So I can see crude in the 60s. But of course, then OPEC plus will act as well. <laughs> I would expect them to. Uh, but but equally, you know, this isn't an Iran that's ready to do a deal overnight. Uh, yes, there'll be a lot of headlines uh, going yep. into year end around this. But the demands that they have are very, very difficult uh, for Europe or particularly the U.S. West to meet. Yeah, and Rita, it's funny that you said that because my next question was going to be, does it even matter if OPEC plus can just come in and counteract that? Is that just going to be permanently true in the oil market, that the only actual factor that matters is the policy of OPEC plus? Well, the irony, it's great you're asking me the question because, you know, so many uh, people, analysts have kind of ruled or, or they've just said OPEC plus don't matter anymore. And um, they've kind of ruled out their uh, importance in the market. But I think you're exactly right. OPEC plus and particularly the alliance between Saudi Arabia and Russia, uh, it's it, it's shown how uh, they have stabilized the market. And I think that alliance is going to continue. Of course, the current deal only goes on till the end of next year. But there will be cooperation and some form of market management management, uh, depending, of course, on the situation. I think the market continues to tighten from here into 23. Uh, they will continue to bring back production and the market's going to need it. We just don't have production anywhere else. Uh, but there will be cooperation between this, uh, these countries uh, for the foreseeable future. Yes. We're speaking with Amrita Sen of Energy Aspects. You said uh, at the outset of the conversation that you think that this is a huge overreaction to what we heard out of South Africa. How much of a buying opportunity is this, especially considering the fact that people do shift their minds uh, on knee-jerk reactions and policymakers in Europe, in the United States, in Asia, want to see the price go lower. Yeah, I mean, this is this is great, right? I think from the policymakers' point of view, this is this is what they'd hoped for after the SPR, but they got it because of the variance. So ultimately, they still got what they wanted. But I think the very fact that it's Thanksgiving and liquidity is low is exacerbating the price move. I think in a normal trading environment, we probably wouldn't have gone down as much because there would be some buyers here. Right now, it's the fear that's driving prices, and I wouldn't necessarily get in the way, right? It's like catching a falling knife. Um, but I think once we get a bit more clarity around this variant and it's not just mere speculation, I think that's when it becomes a buying opportunity. But that could very well be that that's early next week or maybe even mid next week because you do need that clarity first. Amartya Sen of Energy Aspects, thank you so much. So how much of what we're seeing right now is true risk off and is a reassessment of the global growth picture? And how much is thin liquidity with everybody uh, still in their Thanksgiving comas? David Riley joining us, Blue Bay Asset Management, Chief Investment Strategist. I do wonder, David, what you make of today's move. Well, I think the move is reflecting that you know, we viewed the pandemic, the market viewed the pandemic and, and COVID essentially in the rear view uh, mirror. And I, and I think what 
you know this uh, unwelcome news has done is it's kind of challenged that um, assumption. I mean, the, the the assumption was that we'd go from a pandemic to endemic where we kind of learn to live with COVID. The macro and market impact is pretty limited and diminishing um, over time. And suddenly we get this news, which, you know, maybe it's a much more um, infectious variant, maybe, um, heaven forbid, um, it is, uh, you know, less effectively dealt with in terms of vaccines. And that would, you know, that clearly increases the kind of left tail risk um, of a much bigger sort of impact on global growth and, and, and macro. But the reality is, is that we actually don't know. And I think the market, because of the low liquidity and, and we're coming into year end, um, it's kind of, you know, reacting as if, um, you know, this, this is a, a, arguably a greater risk and we can really kind of price at this point in time because we simply don't know. David, the move in bonds really gets my attention. Bonds should not be this volatile, especially with the Fed still putting their thumb on the scales here. But we see actually the implied volatility in Treasury yields surging to the most since March 2020. And that was, of course, when everything was falling out of bed. We have seen the idea of a complete retracement of rate hikes next year. Does this make sense to you? Well, I, th I mean, I think the, the reality is, is that we've seen a lot of volatility now for some time particularly in short-term interest rate uh, uh, markets. And, and that's because we are an inflection point in terms of global monetary policy and most importantly, in terms of the Fed. I mean, it, you know, you're right, uh, Lisa, the moves today are very large. I mean, yesterday, the market was effectively pricing, I think, something like a 60% chance that the Fed was going to announce an acceleration of its tapering of bond purchases um, at the meeting in December, and then actually start hiking rates uh, quite, you know, probably in 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 May or June, um, with free rate hikes in the course of 2022. They've, you know, today's action is kind of taking um, at least one of those hikes um, out, and I think this is one of the dilemmas now that the Fed is facing. Because it's allowed itself to get behind the inflation curve, it's caught between a rock and a hard place. You know, it needs to start tightening policy given where inflation is and, and, and those inflation pressures that are broadening um, out. And I think actually, broadly speaking, the, the outlook for the global, uh, uh, the US economy is pretty, pretty strong. But now, you know, has this added potential uncertainty as to what's going to happen with uh, the uh, COVID and the pandemic and what are the global uh, implications of that as well? Let me ask you about an extended extension of that topic then, David, and that is the banking sector. We're seeing that's one of the big sectors that's being hit really hard here in Europe. And it looks as if U.S. banks will also be uh, will also be hit by the same thing. And this is to do with if there's going to be a flatter yield curve and that takes us back some months then in terms of our thinking on rate hikes and, and, and that leaves banks in a, in a stickier situation. Does that make sense to you? Do you see some of the selling in in that sector as being overdone? Because there's also concern around what fur what further variants could do to economies in Europe, I suppose. But is it really about the yield curve? That's what's weighing on banks. Well, I think it's a combination of the two. I mean, I think, you know, it, if, if, if you have concerns around... Um, you COVID coming back to the forefront, if you if if you like, rather than being in the background, um, then you know banks are you know a cyclical asset, and they're going to get take a hit just as we're we're seeing some of you know oil going going much lower. Um, 
you know, more other sort of cyclical uh, assets uh, moving lower, this move to sort of safe havens, you know, the preference for sort of, you know, stay at home stocks, you know, versus the sort of reopening um, uh, trade. So I, th- I think it's kind of consistent with what else we're seeing happen in the uh, market. But actually, yeah, I do think it is overdone in the sense that, you know, we've gone for a very severe stress test with uh, the financial sector and with banks in particular as a result of the, you know, worst of the pandemic during the course of, you know, earlier this year and uh, last year. And they've actually come out, actually, I mean, they've got actually, you know, stronger capital buffers, stronger liquidity buffers. So this is where I think as, as investors, you need to, you know, stay calm. I wouldn't mm-hmm. be doing too much in these kind of markets yeah. um, with these kind of bid offer um, spreads. But where you have core convictions, and I do actually have a core conviction around uh, uh, bank sub debt, then actually if we see much more of a, a sell-off, then I think that's an opportunity if you've got some uh, dry powder to actually add to your risk position. David, you said investors need to stay calm. And a lot of times to stay calm, you need to know that you're at least somewhat protected. What do you tell investors serves as the best hedge in this kind of environment? Well, I think it's, it's it's difficult to hedge a portfolio against um, you know a tail risk, which would be a very bad um, uh, uh, you know very bad outcome. So you know what you have to do, I think, with the um, portfolio is that you you say, look, I'm, you know, I'm sticking with my um, core convictions. If I think there's opportunities and the market has um, overshot, then I look to add to that. But also be disciplined in where you have kind of you know low conviction trades that within your um, portfolio, you take the opportunity to start uh, reducing your exposure there. And, and actually, that's something we've been doing, to be frank, uh, going into what we thought was going to be quite a volatile uh, year-end because of these major um, central bank meetings that we have um, in, in December. But you, you, you can't hedge your way from the, the kind of extreme terrorists that were, were kind of um, you know scaring the horses right now in yeah. terms of markets. David Riley of Blue Bay Asset Management, thank you so much for coming on our show. When we should be talking about shopping, we should be talking about the incredibly strong data. And instead, we're talking about a new variation. Today is Black Friday. We are going to talk about shopping, and it is relevant to the entire picture. Joe Feldman joining us. We are so lucky to have you, Senior Research Analyst and Assistant Director of Research at Telsey. Joe, when we look at the shopping scenario, just tying it into the news of the morning, how much have we seen a return to stores and how much are people now accustomed to shopping online? It is safer. It is easier. It is the way that people are going. Well, for the few stores that were open this morning at 5 a.m., I think the online was uh, still very prevalent because there was not a mad rush to get into the stores. Uh, It does seem like people are shopping more online these days. And I think that that's going to be the case. If you really wanted to get something, you could get it in advance. I assume there'll be some uh, quite a bit of store pickup today. Uh, People probably did some shopping yesterday online that they want to pick up in the stores. But we're hearing that this weekend should be a pretty good weekend from a footfall uh, perspective as people do want to actually get back into the stores. Uh, You know, I know that the new variant of uh, COVID uh, is is a little scary so far. We haven't heard of it here in the U.S. So I don't think it's going to impact this weekend per se, but uh, it could have an impact as you get deeper into the holiday season in terms of the store versus uh, online. Joe, there has been a shift also, though, not just in where people shop, but when they shop. And Black Friday used to be the time when everybody would go to the stores. But what we're seeing is actually less shopping than previously expected online uh, heading into the Black Friday uh, holiday. This isn't because people aren't buying a lot of stuff. They are. It is because they've spread it out over more time. How much is that becoming the new normal? 
Yeah, we think that is the new normal, the spread through the holiday season, which is why it makes it very difficult for analysts like myself to go into a store today and then try to make some assessment. Oh, it was a good Black Friday, a bad Black Friday. So much is online. So much was pulled forward earlier. So a lot's going to happen after. I do think this year, the one big difference, though, is because inventory is so tight and the yeah. supply chain constraints are there, people are buying earlier for sure if they want to get something. Well, and to that point, Joe, inventory is really tight. There is not necessarily all the goods that people want to buy available. So does that mean that you aren't going to get your traditional big bargain Black Friday discounts? You know, that's a terrific observation because the truth is you're really not getting what you've seen in years past. Uh, last year was okay. Uh, people a little, you know, more more focused on, on full price. This year, same thing. We're seeing a lot more uh, pricing closer to the full price. So the, in other words, the discounts aren't as steep. We're seeing anywhere 20 to 30% for most stores. Some will be deeper. I think I saw some signs on the gap today for around 40% off. But Generally speaking, there weren't many, you know, deals to be had that were just screaming at you this morning, at least the few stores that I saw, that you had to rush in to get it. Well, you you mentioned Gap there, which, of course, reported results earlier this week, and it flagged inventory as a problem because of all the supply chain issues that retailers are dealing with. Do you expect that some retailers just simply will not have the inventory this holiday season? I do think that there are some that will be very tight. Uh, you know, from for the most part, we got through this third quarter earnings season and the inventory position for most retailers was actually pretty good. It was better than a lot of us expected. Uh, still not great where you'd like it to be heading into the holiday season, but there is this fear that there may not be that second wave of inventory coming in. So it could be pretty tight as you get deeper into the season. Um, but I, I think that we are going to see some pressure uh, through through in, on the inventory. But again, it will mean prices will be closer to full price as opposed to steep discounts. Joe, uh, I'm already running behind. I still owe somebody in my family a a gift from last holiday that still hasn't shown up. (laughs) So I'm already in trouble. But in terms of availability, I mean, is it really the sticker prices that, you know, the big discounts that are going to get people through the door this time around? Or is it really about the availability? You know, I mean, if I knew that a certain store had plenty of a thing that's very popular in stock, might that be the thing that this year actually gets me to to, to show up in person on the doorstep rather than the prices? Consumers have shown that they're prepared to pay up for the stuff they want. It's getting their hands on it that's difficult. Yeah, I think that's a great observation because you are going to see any people will want to get the item that they want. And, you know, we're seeing that that they will go to the store if need be to get that item. I don't think it's the discount that's going to drive it right now. I really do think it is much more item driven that you're going to see people wanting uh, that special toy or electronics item. And whatever is particularly popular, it really has been tough to get. And so people will go wherever they need to to get it uh, to satisfy their, their that demand. Yeah. And and are retailers falling into two camps then for you, Joe, the the ones that have the pricing power and the ones that operate in a field where they really don't? Is that what you're seeing? Uh, We do believe that, you know, and those with the inventory and the pricing power are really likely to be the big winners. I mean, Walmart, Target, you know, Costco's, uh, Amazon. We think those are going to be some of the big winners this holiday season, just given that they do have inventory. They've got the best pricing and they really have the broad base of of items across the the categories that people would want to shop for. So we're pretty optimistic about those guys hanging in the season. Joe, if we do see a resurgence 
resurgence in new cases of COVID. I hate that I'm saying this, but if we see this new variant actually take hold and start to create a prolonged feeling of the pandemic, again, I hate that I'm saying this. Do you expect there to be a conditional uh, and an additional consolidation among the biggest players here because of their supply chain uh, power, because of their ability to negotiate independently with uh, particular suppliers, with particular nations? We think we're already starting to see it where, you know, the, the market share gains for some of those big box guys, uh, the Walmarts and Targets of the world, Costco's, where they were able to, you know, get the products that they need. They were able to negotiate with um, their their um, shipping uh, partners and in some cases do it on their own. And so I think you're absolutely right that they're getting what they need. They're consolidating that inventory. They also have the best prices out there so they can be really really competitive in this environment. I think it's been really much more challenging for some of the, the smaller retailers to deal with this environment. And with the, if there is another flare-up in the pandemic here in the U.S., uh, you know, fourth wave or something, I would think we're going to see similar type of behaviors. And that's part of why we've seen Walmart and Target, even the grocers, are holding up a lot better than people thought they would have at this point. I think we all thought there would have been much bigger reversion to the mean, so to speak. And it really hasn't been. You know, we've yeah. just elevated the level of sales and we're growing on top of that. Joe Feldman, thank you so much uh, for being with us of Telsey. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.